0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Tom Hartman Program, The Majority Report, The David Pakman Show, Glenn Ford of Black Agenda Radio, and Comedian Lee Camp.
1: The number of Americans self-identifying as liberal is at an all-time high, but don't get too excited yet. <laughs> the number's still very low. So Gallup has been asking this question since 1992, and the number today is 23% of Americans self-identifying as liberals. I now...
2: I'm,
1: I'm pleased with that. Oh, uh, we'll, with we'll, Let's... Uh, well, hold one second. So we got 38% of Americans as conservative. Uh, that is actually down from an all-time high in 2010 of 40. Uh, 34% of Americans identifying as moderate. I have huge problems with not asking the question, but what people will interpret this yeah, to right. mean. No, like, no, right, no you jumping. Oh,
2: they're gonna jump. They're gonna presume that the moderates are evenly split. Or that they embrace exactly as much of the conservative ideology as the liberal ideology. The problem of course is the words. Everybody likes the word conservative and liberal still is a bad word. Yes. If you ask the question progressive, we already know that it does better, which is why we're trying to embrace that word. Although I was at
3: a a dinner honoring your father in Washington and I got I was lucky enough to sit next to George McGovern, former presidential nominee, former senator, uh and uh, somebody on the stage said "progressive," and he leaned over and he said, "I hate that goddamn word. We're liberals. We're liberals. Be proud to be a liberal." And that was
2: really yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. No, and yeah, the government's great. And my father says the same thing. <laughs> they're just wrong. I mean, they're like they they they, no, will, no, they, no, they no. They're, they're right to fight for it, but they're like you're like, hey, we're losing.
4: It's a, what? I got, it's a dumb fight. Switch the name. I don't care. Yeah, if yeah, it's right, okay. yeah. yeah,
2: The ideas that are important. <laughs> the ideas that not are Not the liberals. <laughs> no. So, that. And so, what what we know, the news media will do, and what this allows the right to do, is say, look, it's a center-right country, thirty-eight percent conservative, forty-three percent liberal. When if you know, you know, we go idea by idea by idea. It's not really even center-left.
3: It's kind of left. This is. I would have guessed these. I'm not. Specific numbers, I would have get. I would have been right have been with around that around that ratio ra- around that ratio. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Thank you, uh, Stores, Connecticut, ladies and gentlemen. Um, uh, I, I definitely <laughs> would have. Uh, this that's fe- that's what it feels like in the country. Well, it's funny
4: mm-hmm. that people who like, identify as Democrats don't call themselves liberals, right? They'll say right. they'll well, identify they, as Democrats. Right, or but not conservatives, conservatives but Republicans, are yeah. always. But oh, the yeah.
3: Democrat. That's one of the problems with the Democrat. That the Democratic Party has is the is it's a bigger tent, as they say, yeah. uh, and that you know you can be pro-choice and. pro-life and you can be a Democrat, you
5: know,
1: and that's... And uh, so I'm glad, Jimmy, that you (laughs) brought up the idea of the ideas because I I don't like when people are asked, in general, are you a liberal, are you a moderate? Particularly moderate, I have a big problem with that because from my time doing political science, Nobody. First of all, most people just say that because we respect <laughs> moderates in this country, and also, or they'll say it because they don't know anything. I about think politics. I'm a moderate. I'm. I have mm-hmm. very moderate views. I'm not yeah. a crazy person, right? You're right. Yeah. And also, so as sure Jake loves to point out, if you actually ask people about particular policies, it doesn't matter if they say they're a liberal or a conservative. Research has shown that uh, ex- people who say they're extremely liberal are not as liberal as they say they are. But every single other group is more liberal than they think they are. Whether right. they say they're yeah, a conservative, say, yeah. a moderate, or a liberal, they actually, when you talk to them about what the government should be involved in, uh, the role of the military uh, internationally, healthcare, all sorts Education. of things like that, they're significantly more liberal than they think they are. And so I'm sorry that the Gallup poll doesn't show that, and I know that Fox is going to love to say that only 23% of Americans are liberal, although they'll leave out the all-time high numbers.
6: shall overcome someday. Oh, deep in my heart I do.
7: You know, normally I don't turn my show over to dead presidents, but, uh, Harry Truman, here's the speech that I would like to hear Barack Obama give tonight. This is Harry Truman in 1948. This is his acceptance speech to, to run for president of the United States. So it's not a State of the Union address. It doesn't have quite the, you know, the, the calm demeanor that a State of the Union address uh, should, uh, or historically has, let's say. But I think that there's some good lessons in this speech. So just listen to this. This is uh, uh, soon to be. This is the, Actually, he was the vice president of the United States when he gave this speech. Harry Truman.
8: The people know the Democratic Party is the people's party, and the Republican Party is the party of special interest, and it always has been and always will be.
7: Yes, said the people. We
8: get that. I'd like to say a word or two now about what I think a Republican philosophy is, and I'll speak from actions and from history and from experience. The situation in 1932 was due to the policies of the Republican Party control of the government of the United States. See,
7: Obama should say 2008, the crash, the it was Republican Republicans.
8: Party, as I said a while ago, favors the privileged few and not the common everyday man. Ever since its inception, that party has been under the control of special privilege and they concretely proved it in the 80th Congress. Obama should call out the rich, the too. The labor, we needed moderate legislation to promote labor management harmony. But Congress, instead, passed that so-called Taft Hartley Act, which has disrupted labor management relations and will cause strife and bitterness for years to come if it's not repealed, and the Democratic platform says it ought to be repealed.
9: Yeah,
7: And unfortunately, tragically, it never, never did get repealed.
8: I tried to strengthen the Labor Department. The Republican platform, of 1944, said if they were in power, they'd build up a strong labor department. You know what they've done to the labor department? They've simply torn it up. There's only one bureau left that's functioning, and they cut the appropriation on that so it can't hardly function. I recommended an increase in the minimum wage. Hmm. What did they get? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. I suggested. That the schools in this country are crowded. Teachers are underpaid. That there are a shortage of teachers. One of the greatest national needs. More and better schools. I urge the Congress to provide $300 million to aid the states in meeting the present educational crisis. Congress did nothing about it.
7: Congress did nothing
8: about it. Time and again, I have recommended improvements in Social Security law including extending protection to those not now covered, increase the amounts of the benefits, reduce the eligibility age of women from 65 to 60 years. Congress studied the matter for two years but couldn't find time to extend the increased benefits. But it did find time to take Social Security and benefits away from 750,000 people. And they passed that over my veto.
7: It's amazing. He wanted to lower the Social Security age to sixty. Harry Truman. I've
8: repeatedly asked the Congress to pass a health program. Health the care nation suffers from lack of medical care. That situation can be remedied anytime the Congress wants to act upon it.
7: And this was single payer, he was proposing.
8: Everybody knows that I recommended to the Congress a civil rights program. I did so because I believe it to be my duty under the Constitution. Some of the members of my own party disagree with me violently on this matter, but they stand up and do it openly. People can tell where they stand, but the Republicans all profess to be for these measures. But the 80th Congress didn't fail to act. And they had enough men there to do it, and they could have had culture. They didn't have to have a filibuster. There are enough people in that Congress that would vote for culture. They
7: filibustered a civil rights bill.
8: Now, everybody likes to have low taxes. But we must reduce reduce the national debt in times of prosperity. And when tax relief can be given, it ought to go to those who need it most, and not go to those who need it least as this Republican rich man's tax bill did when they passed it over my veto on the third try.
7: Wow. (laughs) So this is, you know, he'd had a Republican-controlled Congress for two years.
8: The first one of these tax bills they sent me was so rotten that they couldn't even stomach it themselves. They finally did send one that was somewhat improved. But it still helps the rich and sticks the knife into the back of the poor. The Republican platform urges extending and increasing Social Security benefits. Think of that increasing social security benefits and yet when they had the opportunity they took some hundred fifty thousand people off the social security roll.
7: give them hell, Harry
8: I wonder if they think they can fool the people of the United States with such poppycock as that
7: I think they can
8: the American people will not decide by listening to mere words or by reading a mere platform they'll decide on the record the record as it has been written, and in the record is the stark truth that the battle lines in 1948 are the same as they were back in 1932 when the nation lay prostrate and helpless as a result of Republican misrule and inaction. In 1932, we were attacking the citadel of special privilege and greed. We were fighting to drive the money changers from the temple. Today, in 1948, we are now the defenders of the stronghold of democracy and of equal opportunity. The haven of the ordinary people of this land and not of the favored classes or the powerful few.
7: See, this is what Obama should be saying. Because
8: of speeches
7: like that in the election of 1948, not only did the Republicans lose control of the House of Representatives, They didn't get control of the House of Representatives back again during the Eisenhower administration, during the Kennedy administration, during the Johnson administration, during the during they didn't get control back again until the Clinton administration.
6: If you're
10: gonna lead my country, if you're gonna say it's free, I'm gonna need a little honesty. You know, when you talk about a million three, uh, people who have now lost their unemployment, um, and, and particularly, I mean, you know, we're now, I guess we're talking on a federal level now, but, um, uh, when you when you're talking about the the extension to unemployment um, expiring, you're talking about um, a people who are whose lives are just going to be have gone from um, difficult and hard to just horrible, and you well, really but also kind you just know, like a, you know like I mean think about the amount of time that has been spent on the. Hundreds of thousands, maybe, of people who are dealing with the hassle of having their crappy insurance canceled and having to buy new insurance. Think about how this was a national catastrophe versus the 1.3 million people who have been unable to find jobs. There's three unemployed people for every job opening. That's an average. In some areas, it's eight to one. Uh they're losing their long term unemployment. But they're not just
11: sitting around, the jobs aren't there. Exactly. Um but I but I gotta say, I mean, the where I slightly disagree with you, Sam, is, is is I think for some of these guys, yeah, it's just a political game and it's how they get elected and they just don't care. No, I really do think there are some of the other ones that really believe this crap, because you know it's the the cognitive dissonance, the ability of the human mind, and particularly in, in some of the people we're dealing with here, to con- for people to convince themselves that they've pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps and they've worked hard and they've done all this stuff, and it's just all those lazy people, and they could all have jobs if they want. I mean, that's essentially what Rand Paul said. Rand Paul, whose dad was Ron Paul. Who was born to a guy that, that probably made millions of dollars off of racist newsletters and had a political name for him to to, to inherit. And the rest, and I think three hundred thousand Kentuckians are losing uh, unemployment insurance because of him, something like that, some large number. Um, and, and yet he made all you know, all these kinds of statements. And I and I really do think that some of these guys, I remember he said, you know, I'm a doctor, I, I I don't rely on the government. People pointed out that he takes patients on Medicare, and he's like, Well, doctors have the right to make a nice living too. That was his actual response. So when you when you you have to remember that you're dealing with people who have this disconnect. You know Mitt Romney, who said he was a self-made man. You know he didn't just take his parents' money, except for the house that they bought him initially for his family. Oh, and the, and the stock investments he was able to live off of. Uh, you know while he was making his way in the world and all the rest. And of course, everybody has access to right. Everybody does. Um, they don't see it. They don't get it. They think they, so. They just they just say, well, you're you're lazy. You're part of the 47 percent or whatever it is. Uh, and you're you know you're different than I am. I worked hard, and they don't ever, ever acknowledge the fact that they had none, uh, either in either a hand up or literally a crane up above where most people start. You know, and, the and
10: I, I, I just admit, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but the saying "pull yourself up by your bootstraps" was first introduced as being ironic. It is not something that you can do. And, you know, it it sort of somehow morphed into this sort of superhuman uh, capability that some people have. But the fact of the matter is you cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It was coined in its first usage. It was, in fact, to show the lunacy of that idea. The idea right. that you can do this all yourself uh in, in these type of situations. And so uh it is I, I don't you know, I don't know that there are, are are sadists out there, but there are certainly people who just it's just not their problem. I mean they just have this perspective. Well yeah, of, I, I think mine. it's both.
11: Yeah. I really do. I think there's some people it's not their problem. I think there's other people who where it's it's good politically to demonize people. That's always popular and always, you know, helps you with a certain core group of people. And I I really do. I think there are some people that that I'm not saying they're sadists in that. Oh my God, I love it that you're being hurt, but it's that you deserve to be hurt because you haven't worked as hard as me. Right. I've worked to get to where I am. You haven't, so I'm sorry. You deserve to suffer because you're lazy. And it's all it's it's by far, of course, most of the time, based on a completely faulty premise. Um, And and uh, you know, and I would say again, sort of take us back to where we started the conversation with De Blasio. You know those the, these guys getting up and making these at you know, this inauguration. this is the stuff again that we 've talked about and has driven me crazy about President Obama, Democrats in general you know the, the whole bully pulpit concept, which you know obviously was originally what Theodore Roosevelt talked about for just the presidency but in our, the, the day of our modern media, particularly with social media and the way ideas fly around, the power of ideas as we 've seen you know for example uh the moving the Overton window on what is acceptable in social security so now we're talking about you know what we should have been talking about all along which is not cutting social security but actually enhancing adding to it um, if you, you know, Elizabeth Warren advocated for it. Tom Harkin, Sherrod Brown, obviously a lot of pundits. People give credit to Atrios, who's, who's, uh, you know, I know a friend of yours, a friend of mine, a great blogger who did this. I mean, it, it, people who have, you know, he wrote some columns for USA Today. People have influence as media figures as well as political figures. You know that that you should always be doing this on all issues. This is what the right has understood. Again which is the crazier and crazier, I mean, in the 1980s, when the, when the Heritage Foundation was first drawing up its plan to go after Social Security, it was untouchable. There's no way you're going to go after it. Reagan you won't know, talk about making it more solvent. You went after it on the right at your peril. Um, and now they're at a point where people, even Democrats, can talk about cutting it. And so, you know, the right has moved the window on so many issues where the left has failed to do it.
10: I, I and, think, I, I think and, Social Security, if I had to pick, uh, I mean, I think in 2014, um, and And frankly, over the next three or four years, I think we 're going to see the expansion of social security become uh, a, a i mean i don 't think we 're going to I, mean, I think it's gonna to see become it. a mainstream position and I, I think, think
11: to win a democratic primary uh, in the for the presidency you 're going to have to support it and that was so interesting to me why, when you see Bill Clinton standing on that stage with de blasio that it 's very clear, which is what i 've tried to say to people recently which you know people who have bagged on hillary clinton and, and i 've said look i 'm going to leave aside. Everything else and say, I don't care what people really believe. It'd be nice if they were believers, but I care what they do when they're in office. Right. And the thing about the Clintons is that they understand politics very well. Where, you know, you know, they've got a good sense of where things are. And I think they can see it. And this is why you need people speaking out on these issues. Because once a few mainstream political figures were willing to speak out in favor of gay marriage, it it became like wildfire. Right. It went viral. Well, I think... it, It was a comfortable place for everybody to be. You know, and I think there'll be a number of issues here that will be litmus tests that wouldn't have been in the past because people in both the media and politically elected figures have been willing to get up and do this. And that's why having de Blasio at the head of one of the largest cities in the world with such a big mic is hugely important. Why having Elizabeth Warren out there is hugely important, and many others. Obviously, there are two that have been talked about the most. But there have been a lot of progressive victories. Garcetti out in Los Angeles, you know, you've had a lot of very good victories uh, in, in both city elections as well as uh, more recently in some of these state elections, elections some very progressive people, Tammy Baldwin in Wisconsin. And this is going to make a difference, a huge difference going I, forward.
10: I, I mean, I think there there are two factors that are going to add to this. I think one is is that um, we are on one side of the the culture wars at this point. I really do think that's the case. and obviously they're they're not over, but. Um, uh, things like marriage equality, uh, things like, uh, even legalization of pot on some level. Um, these are all, uh, the drug war. I mean, there is a broad sort of, you know, uh, and I don't want to get sidetracked here, but we'll talk about the David Brooks piece in a second. But, um, and I think that's on, yeah, on one hand didn't, there didn't that right, it's not, that it's not enough for, um, democratic politicians uh at least in uh blue states, uh to sort of say, you know, I'm for marriage equality and so I'm a liberal. Uh vote for me on this. I mean it's not it's no longer enough.
11: Andrew Cuomo cough.
10: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Andrew Cuomo no cough And um and and uh, it's not enough to say that anymore you you need no, to start think, I, to deliver. Think, and, and I guess
11: what, what and the saying, other factor you know, is, let, cut me, cut let me
10: finish it the other factor I'm i think sorry, that's going it, to implicate go this is that one we have seen in 2013 austerity uh policies debunked two we are seeing increasingly more and more studies and definitive evidence of the failure of the 401k plan uh to to provide for people's retirement there are just there are just basic Realities that I think are uh, crashing up against the the, uh, the 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 corporate narrative, and you know I had some sort of you know sort of really mixed feelings about seeing Bill Clinton uh, swear in de blasio i mean aside from you know my skepticism about de blasio uh you know Bill Clinton was really if you wanted to symbolize and I, I think uh, at least in my mind uh the corporatization of the democratic party he would be a pretty good avatar for that uh because you know this is the guy who was the the head of the DLC before he became president
11: uh he was But I sort of see it as the opposite symbolism.
10: Well, the, he may have come full circle. He's also a guy who you know who sticks his finger up in the air and says which way is the wind blowing but um uh,
11: you know. He sees it blowing towards de Blasio and his, and, and populist politics, and I really do think that the opportunity is there. We've seen it happen with Social Security in front of our eyes. We've now seen it happen with the minimum wage. Uh, in this group of crazy right-wingers, Ralph Reed and Gary Bauer and all of them getting together uh, with a plan to try to inject social issues into more races. God bless them for that. Yes. They're just gonna, they're gonna make it harder on their own side. And, and uh, but, I, but I guess my point is, is I think the left needs to get out there and and we need to do continue to do what we're doing on these other issues, but do them on additional ones. I mean, why why can't uh, you know closing the carried interest loophole be be a position that somebody must take in a primary, a, a presidential primary? Right. It should be. It's an utterly ridiculous fallacy that most people who I know who work on Wall Street even think is ridiculous. I mean, it is. It's patently ridiculous. That anybody who's making the kind of making six hundred million dollars a year is paying fifteen percent taxes so you know I think there are other issues that that are populist issues that can be pushed in the same way by coalitions and by politicians and people in the media and activists to the point where um, it 's a requirement that you support those and that 's where we need to be
6: as I went walking that ribbon of highway I saw above me. That endless skyway.
0: One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving Away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind the scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support.
12: I want to talk about a socialist councilwoman who is putting her money where her mouth is and not accepting her full salary. This is in NBC News. Seattle has one socialist city council member, and she announced that she is going to make good on a campaign pledge and accept a salary that is equal to the average salary in the city as opposed to the salary she could get. The $117,000 salary that she is entitled to, which, by the way, one of the highest city council sal- salaries in the country all but forty thousand dollars is going to go to different charities, strike funds women 's rights groups, etc. She will keep forty thousand dollars because that is more or less the average full time pay of someone who lives in Seattle. This is fascinating to me lewis this is This is just interesting because imagine if this rule applied. In the House and Senate of the United States, you earn the average salary of those in your congressional district or in your state. Things would be upended overnight.
13: I don't know, David. I think if you, t- I think if you told uh, senators and congressmen that uh, that that was going to be the case, they'd do everything in their power to make sure that billionaires start moving to their state.
12: Right? Would they just mess with the average? Well, then, then you know, maybe it has to be the median rather than the mean, or you know, you can figure that out. But Councilwoman Sawant is the first socialist to be elected in Seattle in about a hundred years, according to what city council staff told the Associated Press. I think that this is very interesting. We will see how it goes and we'll see what the reaction is. And it just further reinforces we need to change the way that politics is funded and financed in this country. And, you know, even if we did the average salary thing there could still be gifts there could still be the promise of huge lobbying uh jobs when you finish your term and so many other things we, we've got a lot of work to do
1: Jake Tapper on CNN sat down with Barack Obama earlier this week to talk about his State of the Union address, and Jake Tapper feels like he detected a change in tone from this State of the Union and uh, from previous ones, so let's listen to that interaction. I remember during the campaign when you talked about uh, your presidency being a moment when the rise of the oceans would slow and the nation, the world, would heal, Um, and now you're talking about pen and phone and executive orders and executive actions. Do you think you were naive back then, or have you recalibrated your expectations and your
14: ambitions? Well, part of it is we got a lot of that stuff done. Part of what's happened is that checklist that I had when I came into office, we have passed a lot of that. And so in no way are my expectations diminished or my ambitions diminished. But what is obviously true is we've got divided government right now. Uh, The House Republicans in particular have had difficulty rallying around any agenda, much less mine. And in that kind of environment, what I don't want is the American people to think that the only way for us to make big change is through uh, legislation. We've all got to work together to continue to provide opportunity for the next generation. Yeah,
15: that was a great question by Jake Tapper. I'm glad somebody asked him. Hey, are you going to do anything in the second term? That was the essence of that question, (laughs) really Yes. And he basically
1: responded, "I think I've done enough." We did a lot. We did a lot. No, no,
15: no. That's it. You guys nailed it. That's it. What he that answer was. A proverbial hanging the mission accomplished banner. He's like, what do you mean? I already did whatever what I was going to do the first time. I mean, the health care and something mm-hmm. else I forgot, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So well, like, and the student loans. So student, uh, student, yeah. student loans, Which are
1: neither of the things that Jake Tapper mentioned as, as examples, by right. the way. Right.
15: Right. Now, look. To, to be fair, of course, Obamacare is big, right? It's got some downsides and stuff, but it was it was a big build up pass, no question about it, right? So he always talks about historic, historic. That one actually could be historic. It is, sure. The the rest of it, financial reform, historic and nonsense, right? Yes. And the student loans was actually one of the best things he did. It's true. Mm -hmm. But that was how many years ago? That was like at least two years ago that all of that was totally finished, right? And then I guess at year three in his first term, he thought, I'm done. The the rest of the five (laughs) years. It's just me coasting and just doing maintenance a little bit. So you say after he lost the house, he just was coasting, right? Yeah, I know I think that he he's amazing, man. He's the no we can't (laughs) present. Right? His expectations are so low. And then of course the second part of the answer was literally no we can't. Like can we do anything? Ah that one it's kinda man, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. I mean the house would block me. That's kind of a pain, right? And it's not funny because the whole city of the union thing was Americans do things even when they are not easy. You remember Ah, that, right? The whole thing is we do them even when they're hard. And he says to Jake Tapper, "Oh, boom! That'd be a little difficult." No, no, I'm done. Yeah. I mean, that's it. If you're a progressive and you voted for this guy, understand that three years Years. left, and he's already packed his bags. Mm -hmm. It's over. He's not even going to try for anything grand. Let alone, I mean, me- mediocre, maybe something mediocre, but as and far it- as progressive priorities. Kiss him goodbye. At a time when conservative economists are calling for
4: $200 billion a year for infrastructure spending, conservative economists are saying that's what we need right now. Does he even bring that up? Does he talk about mm-hmm. it? Not? There is no grand vision or push, exactly.
1: Yeah. And look, he's somewhat accurate when he says, well, the house would block almost everything, sure. which is true. But then how about dream a dream of a day when they don't control the house and then do something to get us to that day? If they're going to block everything, plan? make them actually block it and then use that in your ads. That's politics 101. But you don't just say, nah, eh, I'd probably lose anyway.
15: Yeah. Or perhaps what you do is if you think that, oh yeah, look, man, these House problems A, are going to block everything, B, I'm going to lose the next election or whatever it is, you know, for the Senate, the House, and the midterm elections. Well, then, great, you got nothing to lose. So make the strongest progressive case you possibly can for the next three years. Because you have the bully pulpit. You can change people's minds. Remember when you came out and said you were in favor of gay marriage? That actually moved the polls. It swung North Carolina significantly, swung African Americans considerably on that issue. We covered that. You can actually make a difference. I don't know if you know this, President Obama. You're the most powerful man alive. (laughs) Do you know? I don't think he knows that. I know. John Uh, Bader, pretty powerful. I think he thinks that he's got no power at
4: all. I mean, he's acted like this forever, though, Jenk. He's always been like this. I've always made that joke. Well, hopefully he'll meet someone with some power and they can get something done.
15: Yeah. 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 And so, if I could ask him to do one thing or have one thing, it would be the audacity of Uh. Hope, which he obviously has none of.
7: Yesterday we were playing Harry Truman clips. We, you know, we have some Barack Obama clips. I mean, here in clip number three, he says climate change is a fact. I mean, this is another. There were there were some bright moments in the speech. This 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 is another one. This was you know, clip number three. Here,
14: listen to this. The shift, the shift to a cleaner energy economy won't happen overnight. And it will require some tough choices along the way, but the debate is settled. Climate change is a fact.
7: There you go. And
14: uh, and he, you know,
7: he made a good remark about you know trying to blow up Obamacare forty times. You know that we've we've already already uh, litigated that. This is uh, clip number seven. Um, the president had this to say.
14: Now. I do not expect to convince my Republican friends on the merits of this law. (laughs) But, I know that the American people are not interested in refighting old battles. So uh, again, if you have specific plans to cut costs, cover more people, increase choice, tell America what you do differently. Let's see if the numbers add up. But let's not have another 40-something votes to repeal a law that's already helping millions of Americans like Amanda. The first 40 were plenty.
7: So, you know, there's a few few high points, but... By and large, it was not... You know, remember... I mean, none of us probably remember. I, I'm guessing anybody who's old enough to remember the, these speeches is, is no longer with us. Uh, but... Back in the day, this is 1936 in Madison Square Garden, the President of the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, speaking about the folks that Elizabeth Warren is trying to take on, that this President in his speech last night decided, even though two weeks ago he said he was there, the White House was suggesting that he might take them on, decided not to take on. This is the President of the United States back in thirty-six.
9: We had to struggle with the old enemies of peace, business and financial monopoly, speculation, reckless banking, class antagonism, sectionalism, war profiteering. They had begun to consider the government of the United States as a mere appendage to their own affairs. And we know now that government by organized money is just as dangerous as government by organized mob. Now, you know, what's
7: what's wrong with saying that, right? Obama could have said that, and you can hear the applause in the background. I mean it just goes on and on and on. You want to hear a really long applause line. Listen to the applause line following this one.
9: Never before in all our history have these forces been so united. Against one candidate as they stand today. They are unanimous in their hate for me, and I welcome their hatred.
14: And then
7: comes the applause. And then the next part of the speech is like a really cool part. We're going to get there, but people went nuts. I mean, you know. I didn't see President Obama getting any kind of applause lines like this last time. Of course, the State of the Union is a little more distinguished than this was a campaign rally in 1936. But um, actually, it wouldn't have been a campaign rally; it would have just been a speech. Because 36 was not a presidential election year, was it? 32, 36. Yeah, it was. The, it was the presidential. So this was a campaign rally. Yeah. Um, so anyhow, here, here. Then he says. Now, first of all he says they hate me I'm, I, I, and, and now he says I, I got these guys I got them
9: I should like to have it said of my first administration that in it the forces of selfishness and of lust for power met their match I should like to have it said wait a minute I should like to have it said of my second administration that in it these forces met their master.
7: <laughs> in other words, I actually kicked, I just kicked their butts right across the room and I did it for the last four years and I was president of the United States and I'm running to run to be the president again and this was, keep in mind, that by 1936 FDR had cut unemployment in half from the Republican Great Depression. In fact, he called out the Republicans continuously for causing that Great Depression. It, 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 it's really, you know, quite remarkable what he had to say. In fact, I think I've got this. This he's, he's talking about. You know, for twelve long years, right? He's talking about the Harding administration, the Coolidge administration, and the Hoover administration. For twelve long years, America suffered as a result of these of these Republican administrations. Uh, for for nine years, actually, there was there was this phony prosperity, and then three years of the Great Depression, nineteen twenty nine to nineteen thirty two. Um, he's talking about this time.
9: For 12 years, our nation was afflicted with hear nothing, see nothing, do nothing government.
7: And, you know, yes, everybody got it. Hear nothing, do nothing, see nothing government. And that's what the Republicans are doing right now in the House of Representatives. But we're not even going to meet. FDR continues.
9: The nation, the nation looked to that government, but that government looked away. Nine mocking years with the golden calf and three long years of the scourge. The scourge. Nine crazy years at the ticker. And three long years in the breadline. Get it? I
7: mean, he's just, it's like Obama could have been talking about the Bush Depression last night. He didn't.
9: Nine mad years of mirage. And three long years of despair. And my friends, powerful influences strive today to restore that kind of government with its doctrine that that government is best which is most indifferent to mankind. Which is basically, you know, Rand Paul's philosophy. For nearly four years now, you have had an administration which instead of pulling its thumbs has rolled up its sleeves. And he did. And I can assure you that we will keep our sleeves rolled up.
0: but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be.
16: This is not your usual Black Agenda Radio commentary. Don't be shocked, but this week, history requires that we say something good about President Obama, at least in comparison with his predecessor and political mentor, Bill Clinton. In the case of Debo Adigbola. Obama's nominee to head up the U.S. Justice Department's Civil Rights Division, the first black president has behaved far more honorably than did President Clinton, who nominated black lawyer Lonnie Guineer to the same position in 1993. Guineer, like Adegbala, had once worked for the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund. She came to national attention by proposing formulas for elections that would avoid allowing majorities to completely shut out minority voters through a system that would more resemble proportional representation than the U.S. game of winner-take-all. Predictably, the Guineer nomination ran into fierce opposition, just as Adegbilas did 19 years later. But Lonnie Guineer never got a chance to testify on her own behalf before the U.S. Senate. President Clinton withdrew her nomination as soon as the going got rough. Then, adding insult to injury, Clinton claimed that he wasn't backing off Guineer for fear of losing, but because he'd finally gotten around to reading what she'd written about voting and didn't like it. In other words, Clinton punked out, left his nominee twisting in the wind, and then blamed her for it, a thoroughly dishonorable political performance. President Obama, on the other hand, stuck with Debo Adigbola all the way through the process. Ultimately, seven Democrats joined Republicans in rejecting the nominee on the outrageous grounds that the NAACP Legal Defense Fund had been part of Mumia Abu-Jamal's death penalty defense appeal. Obama issued a scathing condemnation of the lawmakers. He called the campaign against Adegbale, who's now senior counsel for the Senate Judiciary Committee, a travesty based on wildly unfair character attacks against a good and qualified public servant. Obama excoriated those who claimed that association with Mumia Abu Jamal's legal defense is some kind of crime. The fact that the nominee was defeated solely based on his legal representation of a defendant runs contrary to a fundamental principle of our system of justice, said Obama. In most political matters, Barack Obama and Bill Clinton are identical twins, both servants of corporate interests. But in this case, under very similar circumstances, Obama's behavior was morally superior to his mentor, Bill Clinton. Maybe that's not saying much, but it should be said. Back in 1993, Kwaisi Nfume, then chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus, warned Clinton that his shoddy treatment of Lonnie Guineer might lose him black voter support. But that didn't happen. Six weeks before the midterm congressional elections of 1994, Newt Gingrich unveiled his contract with America and then went on to win control of the House of Representatives. Lots of black folks thought Bill Clinton was the only thing holding back the Confederate barbarians at the gate. Four years later, Tony Morrison was calling Clinton the first black president. Obama could have gotten away with dumping his nominee for the Civil Rights Division, too, but he didn't, and that's to his credit, comparatively speaking. For Black Agenda Radio, I'm Glenn Ford.
12: I thought it would be interesting we haven't done this for a little while we sometimes get bogged down in here are the things that we don't like about Obama here are good things that President Obama is doing and I was on Ring of Fire I guest co-hosted Ring of Fire with Mike Papantonio last week and we talked about what what should progressives be saying about President Obama and I said there's no simple one-sentence explanation progressive should be saying on many issues we would much prefer President Obama over a more conservative alternative and probably over most Republicans. However, there are many issues including appointing 23 ambassadors for simply for bundling and getting a bunch of donations for him, drones, not closing Guantanamo Bay, all these other things. TPP and negotiating TPP behind the scenes. There's this long list of complaints with President Obama. And on those, we should criticize him. But what I want to look at here are some areas where the numbers don't lie and President Obama has improved the situation dramatically from January of 2009, before he took office, until today. The Dow was under 8,000 when President Obama took the reins of the United States. Today, it is over 16,000. This has more than doubled, remembering, of course, as we spoke about with, with economist Richard Wolff, Stock ownership is disproportionately in the hands of the rich. Unemployment has dropped from 7.8% to 6.7%. Right-wingers will tell you, well, that's because so many people are discouraged by not finding jobs that they're no longer looking and they don't contribute to that rate. Sure, but that would have been the case no matter who was the next president. That's always been the way the unemployment rate is measured. GDP growth was at negative 5.4% when President Obama took office it is now up four point one percent four point one percent growth this is nearly a ten percentage point swing this is huge this is a huge change deficit as a percentage of the GDP was at nine point eight percent it has dropped two-thirds to only three point three percent and the consumer confidence index has gone from 37 to 78 it has more than doubled yes president Obama and his drone policy is concerning he didn't close Guantanamo Bay which he said he would do Healthcare reform while it did good things was it was a huge nod to big business a lot of President Obama's biggest donors were uh, nominated to be ambassadors TPP furthering and expanding NSA and Patriot Act stuff we can't deny that those things are concerning at the same time we also can't deny these numbers Lewis. Of course. Uh, with with most presidents, there's the good and there's the bad.
13: Uh, and unfortunately, he is still, in many cases, at the mercy of, uh,
12: you know, Congress. Yeah, and but, let's not let him off the hook altogether. He is still also, in many ways, just another plutocratic elected official.
6: And the people in the houses all went To the university and they all got put in boxes, little boxes all the same. And there's doctors and there's lawyers and business executives and they all get put in boxes and they all come out the same. And they all play on the golf course and drink their martini dry and they all have pretty children and the children go to school and the children go to summer camp and then to the university and they all get put in boxes and they all come out the same.
5: This is your moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net. Twenty years ago on this very day, the world lost one of our best philosophers. He was only 32. And he was a man who thought outside the box, doubted all, questioned everything, and forced audiences to think for themselves rather than choke down the pre-programmed mediocrity dumped in their faces on a daily basis, stupidity dressed up as celebrity, intellectual degradation disguised as cultural masturbation. His name was Bill Hicks, and he was a comedian. In 1994, we lost one of the few people who was telling audiences the truth. Here's one of his most famous clips.
13: kill those people (laughs) shut him up we have a lot invested in this ride shut him up but it doesn't matter because it's just a ride and we can change it anytime we want it's only a choice no effort no work no job no savings of money a choice right now between fear and love here's what we can do to change the world right now to a better ride Take all that money we spend on weapons and defense each year and instead spend it feeding, clothing, educating the poor of the world, which it would many times over. Not one human being excluded and we can explore space together, both inner and outer,
3: forever in
5: peace. As you might imagine, America had little use for such a truth teller. Hicks was not nearly as well known in the U.S. as he was in the U.K., and his final appearance on The Late Show with David Letterman wasn't even aired because this joke was considered too tough for adult viewers to process you know
13: if you're really pro-life do me a favor don't lock arms and block med clinics okay if you're so pro-life do me a favor lock arms and block cemeteries okay let's see how committed you are to this idea she can't come in she was 98 she was hit by a bus there's
5: options But what wowed me the most when I first came upon his comedy as a teenager was how fucking prescient he was. His criticisms of the U.S. military, the presidency, pop culture, and more didn't just cut straight to the bone, surgically dissecting the topic at hand. They also perfectly predicted future events. I remember listening to his bit about the first Iraq war and the first George Bush and thinking, it's all the same now. Why didn't we fucking listen to this guy? So this is my tribute to a groundbreaking comedian who inspired me and so many others. Here are a few words from his brother, Steve Hicks, when I interviewed him on the Moment of Clarity podcast about a year ago.
4: I mean, a lot of people and comedians tell the truth, you know, a lot of them do. But Bill, I think what he added to it, and this is just my opinion, and I'm his proud older brother, so people can tell it we're playing this But I think that goodness and that heart, also came through, you know, and that's what a lot of the connection is, I believe, is that, you know, they're connecting with his soul and with his heart and not just with his words. And to this day, when we meet people, what we usually hear is people don't say, oh, Bill was so funny. What they say is, Bill Hicks changed my life. And it's just, I mean, that's incredible to hear. It's just transcended normal comedy.
6: Plowed the prairies, built the cities where they trade, dug the mines and built the workshops, endless miles of railroad laid. Now we stand outcast and starving, mid the wonders we have made, but the union makes us strong.
17: Legendary folk singer Pete Seeger died at the age of 94. Uh he died peacefully in his sleep. Uh he died around 9:30 p.m. and uh he is legendary for a number of different reasons, obviously because of his music, but he did send a very strong political message through his music. He was a warrior for civil rights. Uh, he would sing and, and preach about how we need to take care of our environment. And he was an icon because of that. He was also supportive of the Communist Party, so there was a little bit of controversy with that. But before we get into all of that, Jank, thoughts.
15: All right. So I, I love this guy because you remember the uh, House uh, Committee on Un-American Activities? Those are the guys who were red baiting and trying to find communists. They went and talked to him. And they wanted him to, uh, you know, turn everybody in. Who did you sing to? What groups have you sung yeah. to? Okay, and I love some of the quotes that we're going to get to in a second. Uh, but it, it's it was a great reminder of how liberal. Folk singers were and country singers were back in the day. It's kind of ironic because now country singers are supposed to be the conservatives and the Republicans, and we have idiots like Hank Williams Jr. But back in the day, Johnny Cash was as liberal as it gets. I mean, check out you know uh, "Man in uh, Black." It's like amazing, wonderful, progressive song. Willie Nelson, Mm -hmm. and then when you go to folk singers, you've got Pete Seeger, Woody Guthrie. You know, "This Land Is My Land," again, also uh, charged with being a communist and. And these guys are old school. Man, this guy, he got his love of folk music when he went to a fair in 1935.
17: Isn't that insane? (laughs) He went to a music festival in
15: 1935. (laughs) Okay, so, I mean, some of his hits were in the 1940s. I want to live this guy's life.
17: Oh, he he lived a really fascinating life. So he actually went to college for sociology, and then he decided, nah, this is bullshit, not really digging it. So he started playing the banjo, and he started doing, like he was hitchhiking, going city to city, playing music, and that's how he became well-known. And, you know, after um, the government came down hard on him for his support of the communists, uh, they decided, you know what, we're going to take him off of all broadcasting. They didn't play him on the radio or anything like that. And as a result, he he released this really great quote. He said, "I love my country very dearly, and I greatly resent the implication that some of the places that I have sung, and some of the people that I have known, and some of my opinions, whether they are religious or philosophical, or I might be vegetarian, make me any less of an American."
15: He told that to the uh, committee on on American activities, mm-hmm. and he said, "So take that, okay? I'm just as American as you guys." And now, look, you got to understand the context. Because at this time, everybody was scared to death of that committee. And this guy comes in and says, You're not going to come over the top of me, okay? You're not any more American than I am. I love this guy. Mm -hmm. And look, he had a recent warning to the Occupy guys. He said, Be wary of great leaders, hope that there are many, many small leaders. I think that's not a that subtle a a swipe at President Obama. Like, be wary of guys. Oh, yeah, the big leader is going to save us. No, we all got to work together. Mm -hmm. And here's a guy of great courage that did what he did for uh, all the right reasons. You know, the college that he dropped out of was Harvard. I mean, the balls on this guy to be like, yeah, I'm going to drop out of Harvard and go around the country uh, with my banjo. (laughs)
17: <laughs> but he lived. He lived, and, and he commented on that as well. The most important, I jo- most important job I did was go from college to college to college to college, one after another, usually small ones. And I showed the kids there's a lot of great music in this country they never played on the radio.
15: And so there was this great ironic advantage that he got from being banned. So he wasn't allowed on TV for over a decade, mm-hmm. right? And so he's like, all right, well, then I'll go to, uh, talk to the kids, and I'll play my banjo for the kids. And it wound up spreading his music even farther. And on his banjo, okay, this is a, part of the reason I love this guy. It wrote, this machine surrounds hate and forces it to surrender. Mm. And it's just a banjo. Mm. Ah, I love this guy. I love him. Okay, and then finally, in his later years, he had this book. There's not dozens of people now doing what I try to do. Not hundreds, but literally thousands. The idea of using music to try to get the world together is now all over the place. And this guy started it back in 1935, right? And he's a great role model because if you can do what you love and use it for good purpose and to try to get you know, get peace and all the good things in the world and progress uh through that music, through what you love and influence all those people to do the right thing just by your example, I mean, what more could you ask out of life? And what more could this country have asked out of Pete Seeger?
8: Hey, Jay, this is Marty calling from Los Angeles, and I just wanted to chime in on the recent uh, phone calls about about sexuality and labels, and myself, I'm trying to be very sensitive on how people want to be lab- labeled, be it gender or ethnicity, politically, whatever, uh, mostly out of respect, um, but partly because there are more important
18: things in the world to get worked up about. I believe that uh, identity politics have value,
8: but you can beat yourself into this deep hole the more you... Start debating about these rigid rules about who can be called what and who's entitled to, to what name. Um, I was speaking last night with a friend who works in gender studies, and she encapsulated it uh, really well when she said, just be who you are and act against the status quo. Be judged by your actions and not your labels. And that pretty much sums it up. Thanks. Hey,
18: Jay. It's Gordon from Chicago. I am a member of the vast libertarian conspiracy to take over the world and leave everybody alone. And I kind of take issue with, uh, well, basically everything you said about libertarians. I think the first problem is that uh, you collectivize libertarians. And I'm going to argue against that point by collectivizing libertarians. Um, libertarians are generally people who don't like to be put into a group. Um, I actually know some libertarians where if you would say to them, you're a human, they would say, no, I'm not, I'm an advanced primate. They'll just make up any new title so that uh, they won't be put in the group that you've just placed them in just because they don't want to be put into a group by someone else. They'll happily put themselves in a group, but they don't want to be grouped by you. So how do I define a libertarian? I think I would define it with one word, and that word is no. Interestingly, in a very non-libertarian way, I got this definition from another libertarian, and it just fit. The reason that the word no fits is because um, I want to have the option to say no to whatever uh, whatever someone else is proposing. That doesn't mean I'm going to say no, but it means that I want to have the option to say no, and that's what makes me a libertarian. So if you want to propose something, I may be totally on board with it. I may think it's a great idea. I may dive in and support it fully. But I want to have the opportunity to say no for whatever reason I may choose. So that's, I think, uh, the best definition of a libertarian to use. And I'd uh, just be interested to hear what you have to say about that.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So to respond about libertarianism, I've talked about this on the show before, but it's been a while, so I don't mind uh, repeating myself. First of all, I just want to point out sort of the 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 perfect alignment between something that was said on the show. You know, it was a few weeks ago, but you know, I did an episode that covered uh, libertarianism a little bit, and that's uh, what this caller is uh, responding to. And one of the segments started off by saying, you know, one of the best ways to defeat libertarian arguments is to let them talk because they sound absolutely crazy to the vast majority of you know sane people in society. And I'm not saying necessarily that this caller was crazy, but he referred to other people. And I've got to say, I've heard a lot of stupid things said by a lot of libertarians. But I think the idea of refusing to allow oneself to be grouped in this example as a human is about the, you know, it's up there in the list of really profoundly stupid things I've ever heard. Because if. If anyone really feels the way this caller describes them to feel, then they are seemingly very obviously missing the entire point of sort of the system of classifications we use. You know, as if me saying that you're a human is the factor that makes you so, you know, as if someone labeling you is actually the act that makes you that thing, rather than just sort of. A system of definitions that sort of make you that thing, whether anyone calls you that or not. And so to refuse to be labeled by others and think that you're making a point is um, sort of sad, actually. But I'll tell you my, my sort of general philosophy on libertarianism, which is that I think it's a perfectly lovely philosophy as long as it is an opt-in society that you're trying to build like I think that libertarian is completely incompatible with modern society as it is structured and very much incompatible with the way most people in society actually want to live and so you know and I don't say this flippantly this isn't like a if you don't like it get out sort of statement that a lot of people make this is literally just like if libertarians sort of built an island or you know a reservation and said you know come one come all if you want to be a libertarian come live with us like that could theoretically work but to try to impose libertarianism on society is to me it sounds sort of anti-libertarian sort of ironically but it it just, it just doesn't work because although some people feel very strongly about their libertarian values uh, most people do not and most people don't want to live that way because you know so the way society works very broadly speaking is that society grants an enormous number of benefits to the individuals who live within it, and with those enormous number of benefits comes a number of pesky obligations. So most libertarians, unfortunately, perfectly enjoy the benefits and then, as the caller said, wish to be able to say no to the obligations. And so that is intellectually dishonest, and I would tell those people to go fuck themselves. But then there are plenty who are very intellectually honest and say, no, I, I don't want the benefits of society either. So since I don't want the benefits of society, allow me to say no to the obligations as well. And to them, I say, that sounds excellent. I am very sorry that your view of the world is not compatible with society. I'm sorry, but you, in order to live the way you want to live, probably have to separate yourself from society in in a way that sort of resembles you know native american reservations or an island or something like that cuz it's n- it's not going to work to try to you know govern a, so- a society like ours in a liber- libertarian way because pe- people aren't down for that they uh, people want the benefits of society which is not the same as the conservative talking points of like people wanting free stuff it's, it's literally just like uh, I want for other people to take care of so, sort of the odds and ends for me so I can focus on what I actually care about. Now, the last time I brought up this idea uh, on the show, caller uh, mentioned that, you know, hey, that might be okay for the first generation. You know, the first generation of, you know, opt-in libertarians who live on their island or are in their reservation. That's great. But then what about their kids? You know, kids brought up in that society – don't know about the rest of the world, and, and you know they don't know that things can work a different way, and they haven't opted in; they've just been born into it. And I don't think this came up in the first conversation, but I thought of it recently that you'd have to do something like an Amish uh, Roomspringa style, uh, you know, where you allow the kids to go out when they turn sixteen or whatever, and you know, go explore the benefits of society and see if you want to come back and be a libertarian or join the rest of the world. So those are my basic thoughts. I, I don't personally understand the motivation that uh, that libertarians have, but I absolutely recognize that these people clearly exist. So, you know, my response, you know, the caller was wondering what my response would be to the desire to just be able to say no is well, I'm sorry society doesn't work that way. If you want it to, I think you have to create your own. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your account at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left Podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from Bestoftheleft.com. And it's a shame. How
6: we get so trained. We can't see past the sad story. se pao stroll is